0: Before we get started, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. In the words of Keeley Companies CEO, Rusty Keeley, when it comes down to it, there are two things that make Keeley Companies incredible. People and process. The strategic growth model called the Keeley Way ensures that Keeley achieves results on purpose, including five-year visions, scorecards, meaningful action plans. The Keeley Way allows Keeleans to turn dreams into reality and drives goals to realize visions. Because of this relentless focus on people and culture, Keeley Companies has experienced explosive growth that shows no signs of slowing down. Learn more at KeeleyCompanies.com.
1: Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book, On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary.
0: Well, hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. My goodness, 2020 is behind us, but a lot of the words that uh, represent the year remain in front of us. Difficult, challenging, unprecedented, divisive, uh, dumpster fire, impossible. And it's that last word, really all of them, but that last word in particular that we are going to be focusing on redeeming during this podcast today. Again, let me say the word impossible. What do we do? How do we respond when we hear that something that we desire, something that we long for in our marriage, in our singleness, with an addiction, with a medical crisis in our society or in the world is impossible? How do we respond? How do we move forward? What questions do we ask? To whom do we ask them? And what is our next best step forward? Well, my friends, at the end of the day, that is what the conversation today is with my guest. His name is Doug Lindsay. Doug Lindsay and I, uh, truth be told, we went to high school together, so we've known each other for quite a while, but just because we went to high school together does not mean that this guy is not worth pulling up your chair a little bit closer toward your radio today, grabbing out your favorite journal, picking up your favorite pen, and taking a lot of notes because Doug has an awesome story. He's got an awesome story. At age 21, Doug was living the dream. He's in college. He's doing his thing. Everything is going perfectly smoothly. Life is pretty doggone good. And then he gets sick. And then he gets sicker. And then he gets sicker yet. And then he goes from being this happy-go-lucky college-aged kid to losing everything. He's sent home. He's unable to stand. He's unable to move around freely. He's unable to go to school. He's unable to work and earn. And he's got to figure out first what's wrong with him. And then secondly, how do I fix this? How do I fix this? There was no solution to the issues that Doug faced. And so he invented them. It's a crazy good story about overcoming, about achieving, about miracles, and about ultimately doing the impossible in the life that you have and my friends, as we wrap up this year and as we step into the next, let's do the impossible together. Let's make sure we recognize it is not easy, but the foundation is firm. The headwind is real, but the best days are in front of us. The impossible is not. And to remind us of that is my friend and soon to be yours. His name is Doug Lindsay. Doug, brother, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thank you, John. Man, I'm, I'm really glad to have you on our show. And the listeners heard me a moment ago brag about you, brag about our friendship. But when you meet somebody, whether it's in a hospital or on a Zoom call or at a bar or wherever it might be, and they tell you what they do for a living. And then they say, so, so Doug, what do you do for a living? What's your response?
1: Well, because <laughs> the things I do are unusual, I start with the one that makes the most sense, which is that I give keynote speeches at conferences. So I travel and I, you know, I, I address conferences. And that usually leads to a why or something. But, you know, compared to the rare disease work I do, which is sort of a one of a kind kind of kind of thing, you know, it uh, at least that makes sense.
0: When they say why? Yeah. And, uh, and they're three quarters of the way with their drink. And you can tell they're starting to turn back toward the bar. So you don't have much time with them. Yeah. And they say, well, well, what do you speak about? What's yeah. your response to that?
1: Well, I tell them that I talk about the role of hope and character in innovation and life, and that I came to do that when I got sick at 21, spent 11 years homebound and bedbound, and when nobody knew what to do, I developed the surgery that fixed me.
0: (laughs) All of a sudden, they're going to set their drink down, turn away from the bar, turn toward Doug. So my friends, now you know why we brought this gentleman into your life today. When you hear the words impossible... I think you will be challenged to say, says who, says who, and are they sure? Because you have exhibit A right now of what can happen when you refuse to believe the diagnosis, diagnosis of what others have cast for you. So Doug, thank you for uh, giving us an introduction into yourself. And why don't we back the train up a little bit farther from the bar before you got the diagnosis, before you started falling sick and, be, and feeling the ailments. Mm-hmm. You you traveled a bit growing up. I think you were, grew up a bit in Tennessee, a bit in Texas before you eventually came home to Missouri. Talk yeah.
1: Yeah, my parents were from here from St. Louis and then, you know, work brought them elsewhere and I ended up with what I say is the perfect biography for a country singer cuz I was born in Texas. I lived in Nashville for 7 years without a record deal and then when I was 8, we moved to St. Louis. So what was life like for
0: uh, this little man moving around? Just talk about your childhood.
1: Well, we, I had a big backyard with a hill and I got to ride the, uh, the big wheel down that hill. And then my grandfather taught me how to swing a golf club, you know, when I was a little kid. So there's a picture or two of me holding an, an iron, you know, sort of, but holding it the right way. And those were nice. But as long as I've been alive, my mom has been too sick to work. And she didn't really understand how sick or disabled she was. And that's a chance, like it's a, it is a mixed circumstance. We can't even just call it a mixed blessing, but when you are determined to do all you can, it's a wonderful thing. But when you really don't understand how sick you are, it's also, uh, it, it, it gets in the way of getting the help you might be able to get. And so that was tough. You know,
0: when, because you become familiar with what's around you. And so yeah. you see your mother as your mother and nothing more, nothing less. She's, she's like every other mom out there. Mm-hmm. When did you start to realize that your mom was more sick than other moms?
1: I know that I, re- I remember I had a, a thing on my hand and I was in St. Louis by this point, And we went to the doctor's office. My mom would lay across the back seat and my, and I sat in the front and my grandfather drove my mom to the doctor. And they had to bring me into the small little room because, you know, kids. So I'm there and I guess I'm maybe eight or nine. And the doctor and my mom were talking and he wanted her to sit in a chair that looked like a dentist chair. And she was hemming and hawing and saying she really couldn't do it because she has back problems. And he told her to get in the chair. And I stood up and I told her, don't get in the chair, mom. And we walked out because, and so at that point, it was already important to me to stick up for my mom and her safety over, you know, and, and, and a lot of times there is nobody to speak up for you when it's just you and the doctor and you don't know what to do. But so at that point, I was already sort of taking care of her, you know, a, a, at least in my heart and any chance I got.
0: I understand that you were not only a caretaker and an awesome son and an advocate in your early days, but also a lot of fun. Uh, Yeah, I've heard you described by several of our fellow friends, we went to the same high school for our listeners, several people refer to you as the life of the party.
1: (laughs) Well, I, I've always been talkative. And I just think I'm funny, you know, like I have a knack for, for putting things together. And, and, you know, for, for, I, little kids don't know what to do but by the time you started to get to be the level where you were strong enough to hurt somebody, I sort of was able to live by a couple rules. And one of them was you don't make fun of people for things they can't change. And that's, you know, like but when, when you grow up and you become a loving person and you figure out how to integrate yourself into this world and give good things back, that's one thing. But when you're a snot-nosed 13-year-old or 16-year-old or something, at least that kind of code really created a circumstance where if somebody had a dumb sweater, they were going to hear it. But if somebody had a problem, they could count on me. And like that, you know, that was the beginning of something that, that just of trying to live by, by a code. And so you could be fun and, and funny. And, you know, I remember being a kid and I sat down bored one day and I went through the yellow pages and I cut out cartoons and I built a little book that was kind of like, you know, Leno would hold up things with the, you know, the, the the thing from the newspaper and read it. But it was all the cartoons. And I made basically jokes, a flip book of, of, of jokes from the different cartoons in there. You know, you'd have some, some, some wasp or bumblebee, you know, attacking an air conditioner. And I'd sort of write a joke under that, or, you know, like these three big headed guys, you know, in a moving van. And you're like, can they even move their heads, let alone your sofas or so, you know, just being joyful and funny was, was a real escape for me. And, you know, I won't talk much about it, but I, my father was not a big fan of me. And I, you know, I think he had lots of problems, you know, that, that, and he just I just never very felt very welcome at home. And so, you know, places like school were sometimes a retreat and being funny and being of service were, were ways to, to really know that, that I made an impact in life when, you know, sometimes I didn't seem like I, I had the, the warmest reception. You
0: know, Doug, it seems to me, most of us get the confidence we have later on in life from the foundation of our family. And your, your mother was very sick from really your earliest memories. Your father, mm-hmm. as you said, uh, and I think you understated it, wasn't wild about you for whatever reason. He wasn't wild about you. He wasn't the most praising of fathers. And yet you portrayed in school and still do as a man, great confidence. So where do you think that confidence came from?
1: I felt like I was a person of destiny and I had no idea what that means, but it, it sometimes, you feel like you're a mission you just you feel like you're a mission driven person and you don't know what that means but you just get this sense that there's something you're here to do and you know it, it it was a challenge i mean i could i could sit down with a math test and get every question right and still get an 80% now how does that happen Because the way my brain works, I could miss three or four of the questions and not even fill them out and not see that I missed them. Like Mm -hmm. I got diagnosed with a learning disability at 40 you know, like at which I lived with. And, 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 and the doctor was like, I, you helped coach me on my TEDx talk. I've worked with you. I would have had no idea that your brain was coping with these things. And so, you know, I had a real trouble learning to read, but all of a sudden my brain clicked and I could do things like read upside down or read in a mirror, read upside down in a mirror, you know, like really, but I could read the same speed as, as normal because reading is such a challenge for me. So, you know, it, um, it, it, but i liked learning and i loved ideas and you know and i like people so those things those things worked in my favor too
0: you went to Desmet here at high school here in st louis missouri go spartans uh, men and women for others is our motto yes you went to ku what were you hoping to uh, graduate with from ku
1: so i went to When I was at KU, I was doing biochemistry research, but I actually went to Rockhurst, which is very much like DeSmet. You know, it is a a Jesuit Catholic college like St. Louis University, but smaller, and it's in Kansas City. And so my mom picked it for me. I I didn't know what to do. I did what a lot of people at our high school did. If you were good at school, you know, you didn't want to go to Yale. I I could have gone to, to, to Truman State for $2 a semester and my mom said you should go to rockhurst and my aunt and my grandmother each chipped in money i had about 90% of tuition covered through merit based scholarships and stuff and just to make it possible because you know my dad was an air conditioning repair man and my mom was sick on a sofa my aunt and my grandparents chipped in money to and to add to what i could bring to the table to make that happen so i didn't know what i wanted but I was glad there were people looking out for me and sending me to places that were waiting for me.
0: That's awesome. I like the way you even define that, waiting for you. What a cool way to live life as if the next experience is already waiting for you.
1: Well, so, you met Mr. Mess, you know, you know, I mean, sometimes they see in th- you know, my advisor at Rockhurst put me in all of these very complicated chemistry classes when I was just going to be a biology major and an economics major or something but he could tell very early on that I was probably going to be a biochemistry professor or something that I was that there was no level of sophistication in this field that they could throw at me that I wouldn't handle well and that I would probably like it hmm. and when you're when you don't even know what biochemistry or organic chemistry is how, how can you even know if you like it right. so So there were people waiting for me and it was, it was, it was nice to have that kind of guidance and it's been nice to find situations where we can guide others too.
0: So you have these counselors, these teachers, this, this future waiting for you and great friends now waiting for you and you're living the normal life and you're having a blast and then life begins to change. Talk about the night sweats and the fatigue and everything you begin to experience.
1: Yeah, so I get this job at KU at the University of Kansas doing summer biochemistry research. And there were all these projects and I could have picked from and I picked the one that I thought would give me the best background to maybe understand what was going on with my mom. And, you know, so there I go, I show up and i am surrounded in a laboratory with i don't know a million dollars worth of equipment you know there's these big there's big machines and high pressure liquid chromatography you know machines and mass spectrometers and all of this exciting stuff and here i am a few weeks in and i'm sweating and i'm spilling stuff and i'm, I'm sort of like comedy of errors level of, of failure you know at, at for a couple days and I go home for the weekend, and when I get home, my mom says, maybe you should take your temperature. It's like 102, and I'm very sick, and I may have been surrounded by a million dollars worth of gear and a bunch of PhDs all toiling to to make the world a better place, but nobody, including the scientist that I am, thought I should take my temperature. So, So I turned out to have mono, and I basically rested for the whole summer, hoping I could go back to school. And I made it for one day of my senior year and just walking to class and back was too much. I came home and laid on the table in the dining room of our little townhouse with the room spinning and and just feeling like feeling as sick as you can. I mean, I would lay on the floor and still be exhausted and say like it feels like the floor isn't low enough. Because, you know, when you're standing, you want to sit. If you're tired, when you're sitting, you want to lay. If you're laying and it doesn't cut it, like, you're just like, man, it feels like the floor isn't even low enough for me to lay on.
0: Almost like a flu, like a a terrible flu that never will pass.
1: Yeah. And so the problem was I'd spent all summer recovering from mono or whatever God's name happened to me. And when I got sick at school, it occurred to me that I had what my mom had. And I dropped, I called her and said so. And then I dropped out of school and came home and withdrew.
0: And carry us forward, man. So you're, you're out of school, your mother is at home, you are unable to get up, you get exhausted when you stand and walk over to the pantry. So what do you begin doing?
1: So the first step is to try and figure out what to do. And there was a doctor that I saw and he had seen me as a, as a child, but also seen my mother. Yes. And when, you know, the word was we're worried that this is happening to me, he took it very seriously and he did what he could. And we ran tests and we tried medications and and I had a, a nice partner for a little while there. And, but frankly, about five weeks into me getting sick, my dad moved out so, and, and left and filed for divorce. And so now I'm in the position of fighting my dad in the divorce and taking care of my mom when i'm too sick to like i said for 11 years i ended up being able to throw a snowball further than i could walk Mm. and that sort of you know so that's the position i'm in and this vulnerable position so i'm working with the doctor and and we eventually ran out of moves you know we had we put me on a thyroid medication that helped a great deal but a great deal is left me terribly in pain and terribly sick and you're just stunned that that's what progress looks like. And that was sometimes the way it would go. So we do all this, we've made all the chess moves, he doesn't have any answers, and what do you do then? And this could have been a moment for, I don't know what it could have been, but there were two voices in my head and one was louder than the other. And the first one was, my God, the the tools we have didn't work, we don't know. And the other one was, if I find out what's wrong with me, Maybe I can help my mom Hmm. because if the tools we had worked for me and I got to go back to school and live a life, those are tools that had already failed her. And so in that moment where we ran out of options, I realized if I find something for me, I may find something for us.
0: That's such a beautiful summarization of where you were back then. You, we're going to shorten the board down just a little bit, but you saw every doctor and her sister. I mean, everybody, and you know, you heard every kind of diagnosis, including the fact that you just you have mental issues. You have, you don't need to see a doctor. You need to see a psychiatrist or a counselor, or a psychologist.
1: And my dad saying those things didn't help. Uh, and, and the fact that he left, you know, like I'm sitting there saying I went from a three nine in college doing fine to to too sick to, you know, to walk to get the newspaper in the yard. And, and you think something that I'm sad or, you know, like, I mean, it was it, it, Yeah, things got complicated. And when doctors run out of answers, they do wonder if, you know, if it ain't your fault.
0: So everyone's turning their back on you. You hit the, the, the floor all the way down and you can't sink any farther. What, what kept you going?
1: Well, I mean, part of it's faith. So, you know, you and I went to a Catholic school and we learned a lot of stuff. But when I went to college, I took biochemistry and I watched these processes that provide all living organisms with their energy. And I watched, I I took a year of organic chemistry. And one of our jobs was to take some tea leaves and make caffeine out of it, to take the caffeine out of the leaf. It took me 11 hours and I was supposed to get a white crystal and I got a green gunk. (laughs) So when I get to biochemistry and I see that nature is doing these things on their own, that me with an entire day's effort and beads of sweat running down my face and complicated measurements, and I'm screwing it up and nature is doing it, every moment of every day and every person and every animal and every plant to make energy, I was so awed that I thought there's a God Mm. because it was so elegant. And I just thought, you know, it sure as hell isn't me. I spent 11 hours. I get green gunk. This guy's got, you know, trees growing and cheetahs running and birds flying. And I think there's a God. And and so, so that I'm was gonna, a very.
0: Apology there, just for a moment, yeah. because I think a lot of folks who, a lot of folks worship science, or they worship faith, and I don't think most recognize the beautiful blend of the two. And a scientist, in particular, the faith bend understands that the two are one. So just yeah. go a little bit farther into this, because I'm I'm, uh, I'm floored yeah. by by your understanding of how complicated life is, and you're not that good to create it.
1: So I'm sitting there in, in all of the classes I took, there were levels of complication that they didn't get to. In high school, they're teaching you things, and they and they kind of go, remember, okay, in the movie Dirty Dancing, they had the, 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 the poor girl running, and then they would go, we'll do the lift later. You know, and she's like, I, I don't know, you know, and, she, and so they kept putting off the, the complicated hard parts. And I finally got to enough school where they revealed the complicated hard parts, and it was so beautiful to me that I thought, wow, like, this is where all energy for living creatures comes from. And it's so neat that there's, I mean, the simple phrase they used, you know, in philosophy was a watch without a watchmaker. What are the, if you encounter a watch, what are the chances there's, there's no watchmaker. And that's sort of just what I was left with was I, I, what I'd been asked to take on faith now seemed apparent to me because I don't see if a God created the universe, then why wouldn't he or she be using the the, the, the tools of nature? It's mm-hmm. not as if you don't look in the middle of a cell and see DNA and go, Oh, there's look at that. There must be no God. If there's this double stranded thing, you look and just say, the fact that there's something is special. And the fact that it works out at all like this is miraculous, even when you're sick and that reminds you how fragile life is, but, Either way, you're still left to say, my lord, what a what a what an event, what a thing we have happening. Like for example, and I won't go into much, but okay, oxygen is very special. So people always talk about how how water is the only thing that when it freezes, it expands. Well, if that wasn't true, then the frozen water would be at the bottom of the ocean and it would be all frozen. And you would have a very tiny layer. So there would be no oceans, there would just be ice, because over the years, that's how it worked. But there's something else, oxygen, which we use to breathe, the way we draw it and say it's stable, it's actually not. Oxygen in its natural form is a double free radical. And if it wasn't so specialized, we would all burst into flames, that's why oxygen rusts everything, is a, is it's a slow burn. That's where we create this energy from. But it's actually a really unstable molecule that's so special that it has a, a unique quirk. And if it didn't have a quirk the way it's built, everything would burst into flames.
0: That's so good. Whether through a telescope or a microscope, it all sings the glory. And I think that you're, you're reading that right now. And yet... Back in the day, man, 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, 26 year old boy, you're struggling big time. You've got two voices in the back of your mind. One is whispering, quit, there is no solution. The other one is roaring out. And yet if I can find a solution, not only do I get better, my mom gets better. Take us through some of the research that led to some of your discoveries.
1: So you'll find that throughout my work, I'm riding different horses across the stream. Sometimes I'm riding on faith. Sometimes I'm riding on science. And sometimes I'm riding on medicine. And these are all very different ways of thinking and knowing, but they relate to each other. And so, and so you're, you're sort of managing these. So what I ended up doing is I sat down with all of these books that I had. Some you know that were literally pulled out of the trash and others that I bought these are 1000 and 2000 page medical texts and i read these things looking for something the doctors have missed right and it's because again this is like two, this is year 201999 i read about google in the newspaper you know at one point like that's where that's where we are in the organization of knowledge so i'm reading medical textbooks looking for something the doctors might have missed i find something I basically say there's this thing called the autonomic nervous system, and we won't get complicated, but it controls heart rate, blood pressure, metabolism, digestion, all sorts of stuff. It's the fright or flight mechanism, and it's controlled autonomously. That's where the word comes from. It's controlled below our level. Like We choose what we do with our hands, but we don't usually choose how many times a minute we breathe or blink. And so this system, what would it look like if something went wrong with it? And that was a question that in my mom's 30 years of illness and my aunt's 30 years of illness, and in my years of illness, none of the doctors had looked at. And I'm reading about this thing and I find one passage that says, the symptoms of too much or too little adrenaline look a lot like the symptoms you'd find with too much or too little thyroid. Now, we've focused on thyroid for years, and my family's behaved differently in response, and I thought, wow, and the difference is adrenaline lasts 90 seconds, because I once had a doctor tell me the, the, the rate of which your symptoms change are too fast to be accounted for by a thyroid problem. Well, adrenaline lasts 90 seconds. That's pretty fast. So, I put these pieces together. I started reading. I started reaching out to friends who'd gone on to medical school. And I started finding articles and sending them, you know, can you get me this from the library? And I'm reading 50 of these. And I come up with a theory and I write a paper and I send it off to the American Autonomic Society as a college dropout. <laughs> and they invite me to present. Right after Mayo Clinic, right before a scientist from Japan. And I'm there in a, in a reclining wheelchair as a 24-year-old disabled college dropout outlining a treatment for my own disease in front of the world's top researchers.
0: You know, so I've spoken at some of those conferences and a lot of the folks who speak in front of me or behind me have letter after letter after letter after letter behind their name. But, but, you, you know, you're barely out of high school mm. and did not graduate college. Mm. What allowed them to give you that microphone, give you that opportunity and bend their ear toward your ideas? Because it's, it's actually not only courageous for you to be there, it's wildly courageous. But it's also pretty bold that these guys gave you the opportunity to be part of their
1: event. There's a couple possibilities. Some of the people in the field from England and from Nashville, the people running it, they had a fondness for me because I was a scientist. And a scientist is someone who employs the scientific method and the tools of science to learn about things, not a person in a white coat with a lab. So part of it is that, but there's one other quirk. And that is that I used to live in a place called University City. And College Park is a college town, College Station's a college town, University the head of the American Autonomic Society was named Italo Biagioni. He's from Italy. There's a chance that DM Lindsay from University City that he thought I was a doctor. So we don't know which Machinations of fate twisted whether it was my the, the people who supported me bending the branch to let me get through or just a mistake that let the dumbest, least educated, goofus you know, who could walk the least distance show up in front of all of them. But they treated me with respect when I was there and they treated me like a scientist.
0: What was the takeaway? What, what is the next step once you hop back on that plane? Your friends are around you, you bought a bunch of seats so you can actually recline. What was your next step afterwards?
1: I thought it was, uh, I thought I'd given my chance and I, I hadn't found anybody to work with. So you feel like a failure, but as a scientist I hadn't tried my treatment so you don't quit. Because if somebody's opinion of your idea is that it isn't good, it doesn't matter. You run the experiment. So it took me another year and a half to find somebody to work with. I finally go to the University of Alabama, Birmingham and I start working with a guy who's since passed away. His name's Dr. Cecil Coughlin and he was a wonderful researcher and a mentor to me and he and i worked together for years and so we tried my proposed treatment and he ran the testing that showed i had an autonomic nervous system problem if you're out there and you don't know what these are called they're called dysautonomias so that is the first part is dys dys for dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system mm-hmm. so if you were to put that into google or bing or pick your choice, you will find information on nonprofits and organizations that can help you learn about autonomic problems. At the time, there wasn't a lot. And so I'm sort of struggling out there on my own in large measure. I start working with Dr. Coughlin and it takes us two years and we eventually come across a circumstance in which I have a very rare problem that could potentially be fixed by a surgery and there's no surgery that exists to fix it that won't give me a new disease.
0: Hmm.
1: So, so the yeah, problem yeah. is in my adrenal glands.
0: Yeah. You begin researching this. And my understanding is it's never been done in humans, what needs to be done. But there's a little bit of research done on dogs. And it's not, yeah. it's, it's not like done from 1995. This is like 1920s type research.
1: Yeah. So I start working with the history of science department at Harvard and with the Oregon Health Sciences University medical librarians. And we are scouring the annals of the past to find examples of where these surgeries were done. I was able to show that a cat had had the surgery that Douglas needs at Harvard and a dog had had it at Oregon and nobody knew how they did it. And so these people helped take up the challenge and try to dig and find with me, and you know, with anybody that was working with us, how can we figure out how this was done? And so we found that it'd been done in rats and then cats, and the breakthrough was dogs, because the dog is as big as a fourth grader, which means we're gonna, you know, we're in human size now. And so it eventually took two and a half years. Let's see, the whole thing, it took four years from the time I knew I needed a surgery to the time I got one. Two and a half years to prove how to do it and then 18 months to build the team.
0: So okay. now I've been sick
1: 11 years. Like just, I know because people, years. I just keep throwing dates. Now I'm 30 and change.
0: And would you level set for us to let us know what your life is like at this point physically?
1: I spend 22 hours a day in a hospital bed in my living room. I write with dictation software, I am too weak to hold a book up. So I read on my side, and I read one page, and then I flip the book and read the words upside down and read the, the, the page on the other. And so I am able to get around my house, but not much more than that. Mm. And I am able to manage complex information but but I'm also just pretty darn sick and I'm also taking care of my mom as best I can she's in a nursing home but I'm in daily touch with her and them and we're we're doing our best to survive and at that point I developed new uses for a handful of drugs and they were helping both me and my mom
0: all this from a college dropout who is struggling profoundly financially and physically and emotionally. And before I hit record on our podcast today, you and I were talking about you know, school and old friends. And we also talked about a four-letter word, hope. Yeah. It's an incredible, incredibly important word for me and I know for you. So first of all, how would you define hope?
1: So... The way I tell people is, look, if you look up the dictionary definitions, they're long and they're wrong. And they often talk about the desire for an expectation of fulfillment of something. And I say that's specific hope. Like I hope I get into Yale and that's a trap. And I'll tell you why it's a trap. And then we'll look at what hope is. The reason it's a trap is that it blinds you to success greater than you're aiming for. And it blinds you to gratitude for the good things that happen every day. If you are laser focused on one narrow thing, you can miss the wonderful things that happen each day and you can miss a chance for a future better than you're you're dreaming of. And so what hope is, I needed to know this because I needed something to build on that when everything else fell apart, I still had something that I could believe in. And even believing in God is hard because what we... But hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And that to me is the entirety of the definition. So hope is the belief that something positive can happen. And the reason that's so important is now, if something positive happens, you're ready to acknowledge it and capitalize on it and go for it. Mm. And so it doesn't take a lot. And people say like, Oh no, I'm stuck. Nothing can happen. And I would do this to my mom, this, this poor woman in chronic pain entrapped trapped in a bed in a nursing home. And you would be able to go through the thought experiment and say, can your life get better? And they go, no. And you say, well, could we make your life worse? Could we hit your foot with a hammer? Yes, that would make your life worse. Okay, so your life can change. What are the chances it can only change in a way that makes it worse? I can't make you better, I can't heal you today, but would it be nice for you to talk to somebody that cares about you? Would it be nice to watch a show that that helps you relax? What can we do that brings joy? If hope is the belief something positive can happen and you believe that, what can we make happen that's just enough to remind you that there's value and joy in persisting even in hard times?
0: So Doug, you know, you are a champion now of hope for others, but when we are at the bottom of the well and the light is fading and the water is rising, it's very hard to see that same glimmer of hope for us. So I'm just curious, who back in the day were the individuals, the champions of hope for you? Where did, where did you lean
1: for so your I didn't get a lot, I didn't think, from my dad but I ended up with this amazing roster of scientists and doctors who made room and time for me. And again, this is absurd. I am a college dropout who's bedbound at home and I've invented a surgery in my living room and we're gonna bet my life on it. It all sounds like nonsense. Yeah. At one point, the Japanese ambassador's son came to my home and met with me so that he could take my medical records to Tokyo because he was a physician and he could make my case to the Japanese surgeons in medical Japanese. I mean, Ed Pellegrino was the chairman of the President's Council on Biomedical Ethics, which means when George W. Bush wanted information on bioethics, he turned to his council, chaired by Dr. Pellegrino of Georgetown. And Dr. Pellegrino was my advisor for about six years. Mm. And these people made time. There was a guy named Ken Bloomer at WashU. He's a cell biologist but he happened to work on the kind of, of receptors that relate to adrenaline. And that's you know where I was studying. And so Dr. Bloomer worked with me over the course of maybe 14 years total, giving, helping me understand how hospitals work, how universities work, how research works, and, and things that, that were inside information that could help me succeed, but that weren't about making me better, they were just about keeping me in the game. And these people believed enough To keep giving and also you know I had friends but if I had to pick one you know and I had family too and they we were all trying we all continued to not give up me my mom my aunt but a guy named Matt Krentz and Matt Krentz is a guy who wrote produced directed and starred in a full-length sports drama and he was at the time a waiter at a restaurant called Citizen Kane's And one point we were talking and I, and and I said, Matt, you're the most competent person I know. Why don't you make up a job that only you can do and pitch it to these people instead of pitching movies where they need to give you 50 million, they could give you a million, you know, and and you could stop them from stepping in horseshit. And it turned out I, I was in the hospital when I said that, but within a few months, he'd thought up a job and he was vice president of a tech company. But, but he did the same for me. No he wrote, he, when my mom moved from one nursing home to another, he went along because I couldn't. So, you know, so those are the people that were pushing for me.
0: So you have this team, both medically trained and also dear friends who are there for and with you. You go ahead and have this surgery on the, on the adrenal gland. And, and we won't break this into the specifics, but needless to say, it's, it's a, it's a risky surgery. It's never been done before.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. What, what is your expectation as they are putting that little mask over your nose and they're saying count backwards from yeah. 10. What, what do you think is gonna happen?
1: My job as a scientist is to run the experiment. And so I am actually not in a position to know what improvement would look like. But if this was what was making me sick and we are able to treat it, I could improve or should improve. And that was all I could point at was th- that vague of a circumstance. And, and so there was no this, this many push-ups or this many, the doctors couldn't give you a prognosis. They couldn't tell you we've done 50 of these and here's how they worked out. They were like on the same page as me, a, a, people involved in an innovative surgery and people who were showing clinical bravery by stepping up to do something that changed my life.
0: You know, years ago, I read a book and and this will get half the audience booing me in a moment, the other half cheering. And I think they all should cheer. His name is Ben Carson. He's a brain surgeon. And he wrote a book called uh, take the risk. And, And he's a, he's a radical brain surgeon, but he asks only four questions as he gets ready to do or not to do a surgery. And the four questions are what's the worst that can happen if I do nothing What's the best that can happen if I do nothing? What's the worst that can happen if I do the surgery? What's the best that can happen if I do the surgery? And then whatever the answer is, I'll do this. I'll do this. And because of those four simple questions, he would do surgeries that nobody else would touch. Nobody else would touch. But he realized they are far better off if I try to do this than if I do nothing. And as I read about your case, a lot of doctors were saying, this is malpractice. They should not put this boy through the surgery. And yet that surgery ultimately is the surgery that gave you back your life.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I went from being able to walk 50 feet on the day of the surgery, 130 days after the surgery, I could walk out of my house and walk four miles in January. Hmm. And after 11 years in a hospital bed.
0: Tell me afterwards, was there some type of emotional hangover? Do, do you ever do you ever fully rise back to in quotes normalcy after more than a decade of being beat down like you were
1: so it's a mix the the biggest there were a couple fears i know when when you win the gold medal or you come home from war or you you know like i know that people find a lack of meaning and i was determined to make a success of this, of the life, if I got my chance. And I was also determined not to, as somebody who slays dragons, go find the next one and say, I can't be happy until global warming is solved and just pivot right from, I fight surgeries and diseases to the next big thing. I was determined to, 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 to find a way to live authentically and build something special to do honor to the person who suffered and hoped for that chance and so i did okay i had to go back to school you know i mean walking really is nice if you couldn't you know like driving a car is is you're just you're going to the store and you're like oh they're out of what i wanted (laughs) so you know it it it, it, it was a mix and life was still hard. And, and, you know, that's the other thing humans are not designed to feel intense emotions for a sustained amount of time. And so joy fades and sorrow spikes, but it doesn't maintain that same, you know, intensity at all times. And so I needed to be ready for those. And I also needed to know that winning wouldn't make life not hard. Hmm
0: beautifully said I'm curious when you were able to walk out that front door and go 51 then 52 then 53 feet then four miles what was the first real physical thing you did that you had not done for the previous decade
1: when I made it to the corner a block away I sat on they had a little retaining wall and I just and the street was wet and I just sat on it and cried because I lived on that street I grew up on that street I've walked it a thousand times or ten thousand times we don't know and I, w- I walked there and I sat and I thought I had no reason to believe I would ever be able to do this again. Mm. And that was one of those moments, you know, also going on a walk with a friend and maybe that walk was just around to the stop signs at the corner a couple of times, but saying, that's 10 times what I could do 40 days ago.
0: Doug, you and I, both share the the honor, I think it's a great honor. I've been invited to speak a couple thousand times, and one of the greatest honors I had was to speak at my high school for their commencement address, it was a blast. You had the same honor a couple of years before I did. When you spoke to those kids graduating and taking the tassel from one side to to the other, and you shared your heart, you shared your story, what were you hoping they would receive after you dropped the mic? How were you hoping that they would be better because of your experience?
1: Well, the most, the most startling thing as a man who's six foot one and has a deep voice is that I never feel small until I go back to high school and I finish speaking and they send a, guy, a kid up to the microphone who's both taller. And he goes, Oh, Mr. Lindsay's a tough act to follow. And I'm like, my Lord, how did you find somebody bigger than me? I mean, it was quite something walking down the hallways. I felt like, you know, like I was 14 again because there were people bigger than me by a lot. But leaving that aside, I had a chance to give this commencement and I had just gotten my own degree. So I was now 38 years old and a college graduate, whereas I wasn't all those years. And I had gone back to school and I'd seen something. So what I wanted to convey to them was two things, that what's special about college and what's special about some of the school years is that there are people helping you learn and that for the rest of your life, you'll have to be in charge of your own learning. And so they're blown away by the freedom, but I was blown away by the support because there was somebody checking in on me, even if it was the test, the test was checking in on whether I'd learned anything about this or that. So that was special. And the other thing I wanted them to understand is that adults are so nice to kids and wanna know what they do for their future, but, That is an unrepresentative sample. I want to know what your kids are going to do when they grow up because I like you and they're cool and I want to hear about them. But other folks don't care, you know, the people at the mall or whatever. So people grow up thinking that that the world is invested in their dreams. And it's much better to realize that you can connect with people if you focus on what they care about than to believe that the world cares about your dreams because they have their own dreams and they don't. And it's not mean because you don't necessarily have a deep emotional investment in people you've never met streams all the time either.
0: Awesome, really well said. Before we hit record, in addition to hope, you and I were talking about living life on the margins. Tell me what that means to you.
1: I was trying to, I mentioned that, that the best basketball team doesn't win each game by a margin of more than 10%, that like, the best NBA team with all the all-stars and everything else, they still don't win by an average of more than 10 points a night. And what that tells me is that, and that means Michael Jordan's Bulls or Steph Curry's, you know, like whoever you pick, (laughs) life is one on the, the margins. And that's why knowing what a best effort looks like and giving it is really essential. And if you don't, there's so much of the world that wants to tell you why you can't or why no one's listening or why like just the truth is if you give a best effort and you don't succeed you know that you can count on yourself and that if circumstances change so that you can succeed that best effort will take you across the line but if you can't give a best effort then the world could set up a spot where you could win and you might still lose. So that's how you live with yourself and fail or succeed is learning about what a best effort is. And that is to me, that's how I lived every day sick when I wanted to be well. That's how I kept going as I said, I said, and I wrote this in a book that didn't get published yet and that's fine. I said, I did my absolute best. It could not have been done by me on this day. And that sentence prepared me to honor my effort and get ready to do it again. It's a great reminder
0: for all of us. In addition to speaking, I know you do some consulting. We just t- talk briefly about what you're working on with that with other patients and as you advocate yeah. and research with them.
1: So I, you know, so I still have my own health struggles and I know what it's like to be a patient. But one of the things I realized was after I would give a speech, people would come up. And even if they had companies, they would say like, that was a great speech. And then they would tell me about their neighbor or their sister or their, their, their husband who was sick. You know, they wouldn't say, come talk to my company. They would wanna tell me about who they wished I could help. And after I got to help a handful of people or more than a handful of people, and there was one instance in particular where a very skilled advocate had been working for months and I was able to give them new options in 90 minutes in a disease that I wasn't much aware of, but just because I understood hospitals and science and research, I realized maybe I, should, maybe I could do for others what I did for my mom and my aunt. So I call it a personal medical consultant service. And it's basically, I can work with about four people a year and they're able to hire me and I basically join their family and if you have a rare or complex condition and you're stuck in the medical system I try and we find doctors to work with for you we know when you're in appointments whether you're getting blown off or whether you're getting taken seriously when a doctor says this is uh, you know this is ruled out we're able to determine is it really ruled out or are they you know like Yep. I'm able to use all I learned to help these people who were stuck in the medical system, see if we can get them unstuck. And mm-hmm. so far it's gone really well with the, with the, the families I've worked with and they work hard too. Like because life is again, one on the margins, all of us are trying our best because if I, if I get a case, the only thing I know for sure is that the best doctors in the world have already tried and come up empty. And I don't even know if I can, We don't know what's possible in terms of an outcome, but we know that we can bring order and care and a good supportive care team and some answers to people who are struggling.
0: I have a friend named Mick Ebelin and Mick says that sometimes the individuals without the letters behind their names are, are the ones who will find the solutions to the problems. And other times the people with all the letters behind their names are in fact the problems. Because they're seeing it through the same perspective again and again and again. And one of the things I think you bring and that is so unusual is a raw, uh, in some regards, and I mean, this is high praise, uneducated perspective, just a completely new way to look at the same problem through a brand new lens. And it's really remarkable. Many of our leaders who are listening to the podcast and to your voice today may not have a medical crisis, but they may have a crisis of hope. For those of us who experienced profound challenge or tragedy in 2020 or we feel like man we're at the bottom of the bottom falling forward and there's nothing we can do to make it better as we get ready to wrap up the live inspired podcast what advice or encouragement might you give those of us who are struggling today
1: So when I was struggling I still I I asked myself I asked myself what I would say to other people that were struggling. And so some of those that are, you know, that are walking to get water that are struggling to find the basics that are, you know, I asked what would they say to me and what would I say to them and they would say hey you're in a rich country you have a computer, you know you've got you've got people that are listening, maybe they don't listen all the time but they're listening a little like, go for it because that's what they would want for me. And so what my mom reminded me so much of by not judging her suffering as superior or worse than everybody else's is that we're united by suffering. Mm. And so what we need to do is we do our best for all the people who don't have a chance to do what we could pull off. And if you're here in the West or here in America or you have your health or you're alive today versus centuries ago where freedom was not on the march, you know, like you, you have a chance to do something today that is unique in history just because, you know,
0: Where you live we live in
1: a, a time where so much more is possible.
0: Doug, Lindsay, where, where can we learn more about the work you do?
1: So <laughs> lindsaycenter.com is my website. Um, L-I-N-D-S-A-Y is how we spell my last name, Doug Lindsay. Um, and the personal medical consur- consultant service is described there a little bit. My TEDx talk is up. I'm always available for speaking engagements and such. I got to speak to Pfizer this year to some of their global research team, and I can't take any credit for the vaccine because they I were on the way. All the
0: credit. But- never apologize. Just take full credit for being the first vaccine out, and you were the speaking engagement that got it done.
1: There you go. I'll let John say it. He's he, you know, he gives some speeches too, and I hear they're pretty amazing because I've heard them.
0: Doug Lindsay, we have seven questions that tether all of our guests together. And uh, I'd look forward to taking you through the Live Inspired Seven. They begin always with the first question, which is Doug, what is the most impactful or the best book you've ever read?
1: Um I read the book. The Master and Margarita, and it was a novel, and it inspired the Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil, and it opened my eyes to how remarkable a work of fiction can be.
0: Wow. Who wrote it? I'm not familiar with it.
1: The guy's name is Bulgakov, B-U-L-G-A-K-O-V. He wrote it in 1930, and they smuggled it out of the Soviet Union in the late 60s, and it hit the world like a thunderbolt, and, some people know about it, but most have never heard of it. It is pretty wild. Awesome. I'm checking it out. What is one positive characteristic or one trait
0: that you possessed writing that country song growing up? A little boy born in Texas, lived seven years in Nashville before you moved up to Missouri that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today as you did back then.
1: It's been a hard year. So the belief in, in others. I mean, this has been a challenge for masks to you know, to, to protests, to messages and, and so many people I, I'm, I'm hoping to bring more of that back for myself to just say the belief that in others, I have it, but not to the, you know, like that little guy, he knew you could do it, man.
0: Well, that little guy became a man who proved you can do it. So uh, question number three is if your are home or in your case, your homes, man, because you're moved out of one and into another, <laughs> if your home caught fire. And all living things, your family, your pets, everybody's out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item. What would you
1: race back in and save? I'm grabbing, I'm grabbing my computer because it's got the the work. Hopefully, it's all not in the cloud, and I find out that it was like that it was a wasted effort. Because then I'd probably grab the the Bible that my mom had in high school that I eventually read. Wow!
0: If you could sit on a bench on a perfect day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you like to be seated right next to?
1: Yeah, I mean, you know, Thomas Jefferson's a great guy. Marcus Aurelius is a wonderful fellow. Aristotle, I don't speak Greek, but but he's the smartest human being and the greatest non-religious thinker ever. But I got to meet with my mom. She's passed and it would be lovely.
0: What's the first thing you would tell your mom that? somehow maybe you, you wish you had told her even more
1: clearly somehow over the time that you had her? Just how proud of her I was for the example she set as somebody who lived with suffering, yeah. but grace. What's the best advice, Doug, that your mother or
0: anybody else ever gave you?
1: In science, you run the experiment. I mean, when, when, you know, the opinions, I, I do this all the time. I'll get in front of a room full of doctors and I'll, and I'll hold up letters and say, this is a colleague of your professional medical opinion and on and on, and how much do you value it? And they'll say very much. And then I'll say, okay, now let's think of it as an experiment. And here in this envelope are the results to, this, to, the, to their experiment that's never been done. And here are your five smart friends of what they think is gonna happen, which do you want? And they always say, give me the results. <laughs> So when you have something and you're not sure, sometimes if it's feasible, you run the experiment.
0: What would you tell your 20-year-old self? This is about a year before those hot flashes, night sweats, and fatigue set in. So what what advice would you give your 20-year-old self?
1: I mean, leaving aside the medical tip of, hey, buddy, adrenal medullary hyperplasia, autonomic nervous system, here are some meds that you can read about, leaving that aside, I think that man at 20 would want to know that like love beyond just that small family unit of me and my mom and stuff that love is real and that he's okay. He's okay and
0: it's okay and the best is yet to come. And it leads us to question number seven for Dr. Doug Lindsay. It has been said that all great researchers, scientists, human beings Doug, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence
1: to read? I used to joke with my mom all the time because the thing I did was 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 pretty complicated that people are gonna look at me and point and say, that's the guy who did the thing. The, the, you know, like it, it's a complex enough story that the, that's the guy that did the thing.
0: That is the guy that did the thing that found the symptom that triggered the illness, invented this surgery, created the team, and did it all somehow fueled by hope and inspired by faith. And Doug, you shared your heart today. And man, I've been your friend for a long time, but this was a blast. I'm really glad that we sat down and made time for this. Me too, John. Love you, brother. And love you too. Congratulations on the life that you continue to live. It's quite an inspiration. Thank you. My friends, that is Doug Linty. He is powered by hope. My name is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. And now, a word from our friends at Keeley Companies. What started in 1976 as a local paving company has grown into a national provider of construction, Infrastructure, wireless, technology, development, and logistic solutions. Over four decades and 1,800 Keeleyans later, Keeley Company's roots still guide them. In the words of their founder, Larry Keeley, quality and service never go out of style.